Matthew 26, verse 59 through 64. We're coming in the middle of a scene here of the trial of the Lord Jesus. In the middle of the night there, before he was crucified the next day. Not a fair trial. Not even a lawful one. But the Lord had done with demanding his rights. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ. The son of God. And Jesus said to him. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless I tell you. Hereafter you shall see the son of man. Sitting at the right hand of power. And coming. On the clouds of heaven. Amen. Why should you take the resurrection of Jesus any more seriously than the arrival of a UFO in the tale of the Hale-Bopp comet? That's a question on my mind this morning. Why should you give any more credence to the testimony that a man lived and died and rose again than you do to the testimony that there's a UFO on the way and you better... Get ready in some ritualistic way. Another way to ask the question would be, what's the difference between Heaven's Gate cult, 39 of whose members committed suicide last Thursday, and the Church of Jesus Christ, or this particular church? We believe that a man lived, Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross, that he rose again, that he ascended in human form, though God, that he reigns at the right hand of God, and that one day he will split the skies and return in glory with angels. And we build our lives around that. And others believe that you should build your life and your death around apocalyptic developments signified in the arrival of of a comet and a UFO soon behind. So, pick your myth, right? Now, I want to address the question of the resurrection from Jesus' words here in this text. But let me take you in a kind of circuitous route to there 
by claiming that Heaven's Gate cult and historic Christianity don't start on the same foot today. They're not making their claim on equal ground. Let me give you six reasons why that's so. Number one, historic Christianity is rooted in, let's just use round numbers here now, 2,000 years of history and God's interaction with history leading up to Jesus Christ and then more afterward. you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob experiencing some kind of covenant with God which yields the birth of the people of Israel who are still in existence today against all human odds. And they go down into Egypt, 12 tribes or people, and are born a great nation and brought out of bondage through mighty works, brought through the wilderness, given a law, given a land, given many prophets. And then over several thousand years, those prophecies accumulate into a united whole that say he's coming and he comes, Jesus fulfills these prophecies in a most stunning way. And around him are gathered some disciples who are not yes men who believe easily. They were going fishing after he died. It is all over. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And it's over. And he rose from the dead and appeared to them in such a compelling way that they began to risk their lives for this truth. And they wrote down, nine of them did, a New Testament. And that New Testament has been unleashed on the world. And this Christ was all involved with secular historical rulers like Pilate and Herod and religious rulers like Caiaphas and Annas, all recorded in secular history. This Thing called Christianity is all interwoven with verifiable history. It is not the spinning out of a leader in a trance. It's very different. Number two, because of its uniquely historical nature, Christianity has unleashed on the world 2,000 years of school. Colleges, universities, seminaries, and 2,000 years of scholarship documenting that this is public. Cultic knowledge tends to be privatistic. Christianity has no privatistic knowledge. It is laid out for all to see and interpret. We have no leader hidden away in some place with private, peculiar, unthinkable interpretations of texts, like, say, the Moonies do. I sat down with Moonies often years ago. They don't come anymore. They used to come to our church all the time. And I would make appointments with them. They would make appointments with me. And I would point to texts like, when the Son of Man comes, lightning will flash from the west to the east. So Mr. Moon is not the arrival of the Son of Man, which they believe he is. What do you make of this text? And they said, well, he's written a a special book that 
explains how these are all symbolic, and we'll go find out and come back. We don't have anything like that. There is no secret book. There's no secret hotline to heaven. We've got a book. It's written in thousands of languages. It is open public knowledge. There's no private interpreter anywhere saying, I know the way everything should be interpreted, and you don't need to worry about how public this is. Just come to me, and I'll show you the private meaning so that you can be safe from all the challenges to your faith that are out there. It is not a cultic mentality, this thing called historic Christianity. It has held its own. It has not persuaded everybody for 2,000 years, but it's held its own in the marketplace of ideas, and I do not doubt it will hold its own until Jesus comes with credible claims and scholarly explanations and plausible interpretations for every problem that is raised in the public square. Thirdly, paradoxically, the most historical of all Christian, of all faiths, Christianity, the most historical of all faiths, the more interwoven with history, has no cultural home base. There's no Mecca in Christianity. There's no Jerusalem in Christianity. No Salt Lake City in Christianity. It is not at home in any one culture or any one language. It is home in Christ, in heaven. Therefore, it is spreading like wildfire into all cultures and every country in the world today celebrated Easter. Not every particular people group did because there are some left to reach. But every country celebrated Easter some finished last night already over in Japan and the Philippines and Thailand and Australia. And some will catch up to us in Hawaii before the day is over. It is all over the world. It is rooting itself in every culture because it is mysteriously the universal God penetrating into the particularities of history in such a way that it belongs nowhere and everywhere. It has universal relevance. It is not cultic. Fourth, Christianity has endured the test of time in a most remarkable way against all of the prophecies of its demise. You've heard in our day, and if you read just a little bit of history, you will remember that with every new era, the new era of the exploration of the seas, or the new era of the industrial revolution, or the new era of cars going at the breakneck speed of 20 miles an hour, or the new era of airplanes. It cannot be that humans will fly. They were not intended to. And it will outlive computers. I mean, how many prophecies have to be made that religion is going to vanish off the scene? Christianity is an old mythology that's not going to be relevant for people. When will people realize God is relevant for the heart because the heart is made for God? Forgiveness is relevant for the heart because the heart knows it's a sinner. Hope is relevant for the heart because the heart knows it's going to die. This is going to last. And the Christian form that is so tailored to reality is never going to pass away. It has endured the test of time. Fifth. In Jesus Christ is the center 
of Christianity, and he is absolutely unique. There is no cultic leader and there is no historic person like Jesus. Just read the Gospels and he will stamp his reality on your mind and your heart. He is incomparable in power, in miracle. He's incomparable in love and tenderness and justice. He's incomparable in wisdom. He's incomparable in resolute, humble obedience to death. He's incomparable in resurrection, exposing himself in many infallible proofs, Luke says, to hundreds of people. And Paul, who did not want to believe he was breathing out murders and strife against the church, was struck down by the risen Christ. And from then on, he said, he has appeared not only to me, not only to the apostles, but to as many as 500 people at once. Some of them are alive. That's the way he was talking to the Corinthians. The reason he talked that way is because if you want to doubt it, go talk to them. And we can therefore have some historical control that if you speak like that in the presence of some of those 500 witnesses, they can be checked out. You could have gone back to Jerusalem. It's only 20 years ago that he said that, that Jesus was on the earth. Thousands of people who knew him and knew of him were still alive and walking around. You could check out these things while the New Testament was being written. They couldn't talk cult-like into the void and just make things up because they were talking history and historical beings were walking around while the claims were being made. Jesus is absolutely unique. And finally, and this is very interesting, there are thousands of cults in America. And the ones who have lasted the longest and seem to have claim for durability, like, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, make their headway precisely by piggybacking on the real thing and concealing their unique doctrines. And if you have to make your headway by piggybacking on historic Christianity and hiding the weird doctrines, that's a testimony to the real thing, not the false thing. So six observations simply to make this claim. Heaven's Gate cult and many like it. And historic Christianity, as they make their claim are not standing on the same footing. If you're a reasonable person, you will see more reason to investigate seriously the claims of the church of Jesus Christ, Christianity, than the claims of a cult like Heaven's Gate. And there are many more reasons. But what about resurrection? What about this seemingly return of the Jedi-like claim that a man rose from the dead and is a God-man in heaven today ruling at the right hand of the Creator and is one day going to come back in scenes that will put all movies into the shadow. And that's true. What about that claim? What can we believe about that? What kinds of evidences are there for that one of the sad things is that there are secular people millions of them around the world who look at a cult 
like heaven's gate. Look at Christianity and say they are on the same level. They're just two varieties of the same species because we all know that in the modern world, there's no God. There's no supernatural reality. We all know we've learned we're modern people. We're, we're modern scientific people. We all know that when you see the splitting of the atom and the working of computers and the arrival on the moon and space stations being built, we all know what mythology is and what reality is. Reality is matter plus time plus chance. And you get what you got. Us. At the top of the spiral. That's reality. So you can be a Hale-Bach Comet person or you can be a Jesus Christ person. You're in the same mythological camp. That's the sad thing. That most people see them, uh, maybe not most, I don't know, many. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Norwood Russell Hansen until his premature death not too long ago, was a philosopher of science at Yale University. And he wrote an essay, pretty famous essay, called What I Do Not Believe, to defend and explain his atheism, doesn't believe in God. And one of the paragraphs in there goes like this. This is his word. Suppose that on next Tuesday morning, just after breakfast, All of us in this one world are knocked to our knees by a percussive and ear-shattering thunderclap. Snow swirls, leaves drop from trees, the earth heaves and buckles, buildings topple and towers tumble. The sky is ablaze with an eerie, silvery light. Just then, as all the people of the earth look up, the heavens open. The clouds pull apart, revealing an unbelievably immense and radiant Zeus-like figure towering above us like a hundred Everests. He frowns darkly as lightning plays across the features of his Michelangeloid face. He then points down at me and exclaims for every man woman and child to hear. I have had quite enough of your too clever logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, Norwood Russell Hansen, that I do most certainly exist. And then he comments, the conceptual point is that if such a remarkable event were to transpire, I, for one, would certainly be convinced that God does exist. Now, the link between that demand from Norwood Russell Hansen is verse 64 in our text. So if you close your Bible, why don't you open them up again? And if you have it open, back to Matthew 26. The stunning thing, as I pondered this this week and... How many people today regard the celebration of Easter as just one among many religious celebrations with no more historical warrant for faith than any other? The astonishing thing was to read verse 64 in the light of this atheist's demand. Jesus says to the high priest, 
You shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, Norwood, it's going to happen just like you said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Only the lightning won't just be playing across the face. It'll be flashing from horizon to horizon. He won't just be a hundred Everests tall. He'll be 10,000 Everests tall. His face won't just be Michelangeloid like the Sistine Chapel. It will be like the sun shining in full strength. And not only you, but every being in the universe will go flat on your face and know that I am Christ, the Son of God. It's coming, Norwood Russell Hansen. I wish you had known. There's a problem, isn't there? A problem. It's future. So how can I know it now? You're asking me to believe now. And you tell me it's coming. I'll tell you one more thing. Not John Piper, it's Jesus Christ, Matthew 25. It's going to be too late if you wait. Nobody will see the sky split as an unbeliever and go to heaven. It's going to be too late. So tell me about it. Tell me about the resurrection. Tell me about how to know these things. Tell me what kind of evidence. Bertrand Russell, another atheist. You know what Bertrand Russell said when somebody asked him one time, What are you going to say at the judgment day? And he smiled. He said, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. So what's the evidence? What I'd like to do is stay right here with this text and walk backwards up into the origin of this claim. Here's Jesus claiming that he's going to sit at the right hand of God after he rises from the dead in just a few hours. He's going to ascend there, rule there, come from there, call the whole world to account. Everybody in this room, everybody who's not in church this morning, they're all going to be called to account. Where's that come from? How do you credit that? How do you know that? What can you do with that? So let's go backwards now. Why did he say it? Well, look at verse 63. Second half of the verse. The priest asked him a question or made a demand. The priest said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God, to which Jesus now responds. You said it yourself. Not only that, not only what you believe about the Christ, the son of God, I'll tell you something more that you don't even understand that the Christ, the son of God that you're about to put to death. And therefore, you can't even you can't even imagine that he's the son of God is going to be the ruler of the universe and come with power and glory someday. Now the question is, where'd that, I adjure you, are you the Messiah, come from? Why did the high priest say that? Nobody has ever said that to me. I try to be a good man. I try to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. And nobody, believe, can you believe this? Nobody has ever said, John Piper, tell me, are you the Messiah? So, since they have never asked me that, I regard this as a remarkable thing. 
Why would they ask him this? Where does this come from? What happened? What has he said? What has he done to create this crazy moment where a man looks another man in the face and says, Are you the son of God? That's a strange question for a human to ask another human. So what's going on here? Well, let's just back up in the text. Let's go back up another step. Now, here's what's happened. He got him in this trial in the middle of the night and some false witnesses who seem to have some credibility and a shred of truth step forward. These two men, you picture their hearts pounding because God is working here. Universal, powerful things in this hour. And they're all part of it and they don't even know what they're part of. And they say in verse 61, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That's what he said. And he disappeared. And there's silence. Jesus watches him walk away. He doesn't say a word. And the high priest says, what does he say? Verse 62. Do you make no answer? What is this that they are testifying against you? In other words, where does that come from? Tear the temple down and build it again in three days? What kind of a person are you? Tell me, what, what is this? This is a crazy thing. Are you a crazy man? We know crazy people. They run around, cut themselves with rocks, hide in tombs. Are you one of those? Or are you claiming to be the Son of God, Messiah? And then Jesus answers. Well, you said that. That's true. And not only that, but in just a few hours, I'm going to rise from the dead. And in a few days, I'm going to ascend to the Father. And in a few centuries, I'm coming back. And I'm going to rule the world. Now, to understand this, we've got to go one step further back. Where did that come from? This man said, I'm going to tear down this temple and in three days, I'm going to raise it again. Is that a true statement? Did he say that? It was a real popular rumor. You can read about it in several places in the Gospels. For example, in Mark 15, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the, the crowds are kind of milling around out there, remembering things that he said, evidently, maybe not getting them quite right. And they say, Mark 15, 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple. And rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. It's a real widespread rumor. It's out there. Where did it come from? And what did it mean? It got everything started here. It made the high priest go into orbit. It made him ask Jesus about the Messiahship, the sonship of God. And it made Jesus finally say, yes, and more than you think I am. Where did it come from? What, what did he say? So now if you have a Bible and you want to go with me for these last few minutes to see where he said what he said and whether they got it right and what it means, turn with me now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Turn to John chapter 2. The only place in the Gospels where Jesus says something like this, all the other places his enemies are saying it. 
What did he say and what did it mean when he said it? Now, in John chapter two, there's a situation starting around verse 15, 16. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and something happens in his heart. Something happens that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Gospels. He is furious. In fact, just a few verses later, they're going to quote Psalm 69.9 where it says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. They quote those verses. So he takes a whip and he weaves it. He didn't do this any other time. Seems so out of character, doesn't it? The Lamb of God, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the lamb taken to the slaughter, the sheep before its shearers dumb, is weaving a whip. And he walks through the temple, shoot, 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 and turns over the temples and spills the coins and drives out these money changers. And there's this incredible tension. Who in the world And what in the world? This has never happened in the temple of Almighty God. And when things settle down, Jesus lifts his voice. And he says in verse 16, see it, it's not my words. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. My father's house. These are words just packed with implications. And the authority... To interrupt the sacrificial system. The authority to intrude upon the space of the priests. The authority to stand in the center of the building where people are to meet Almighty God and say, My Father's house will be what I say it is. This is awesome. This is a rumor worth telling in Jerusalem. And so they say, What sign do you do? Because you do that. Verse 18. What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? In other words, this is unheard of. Human beings don't act this way. You, you'd be killed for this. What sign? That is, what's your authority? What's your evidence? On what basis should we allow you to do this and not kill you for doing this? That's the question. And here's his answer. Verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that's all he said. There's your sign. You want a sign? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And John, the writer, says in verse 21, He was speaking of the temple of his body. Be careful. Yes and no. I mean, give the listeners a break. He's just walked into the temple, the building. He's just driven out money changers from the temple. He's just called the temple his father's house. They have just quoted Psalm 69.9 about the building, the temple. And he opens his mouth and says, the sign is destroyed this temple. 
I mean, give them a break. What are they going to think about the temple? And they thought exactly what Jesus wanted them to think. This temple's coming down. This temple, this building in Jerusalem is coming down. It took 40 years for that to happen. And it came down. And it's never gone up again. But what happened in 70 A.D. under Titus, the Roman, who flattened the temple? In the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus spoke in Luke. What happened 40 years later was not the decisive ending of the temple. The decisive ending of the temple was the destruction of Jesus. Now notice very carefully, Jesus does not say what the rumors said that he said. Jesus said in verse 19, you destroy this temple and I will build it again. So the question is, how did they destroy the temple? And the answer is, they destroyed their temple by destroying Jesus. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, the last lamb was sacrificed. And Ichabod was written across the temple in Jerusalem. The glory has departed. The sacrifices are now over. And when the great heavenly high priest offered up no longer bulls and goats, but himself Upon the cross, written over the priesthood centered in the temple was, no more. You are ended. He was the last sacrifice. He was the last priest. And he is the meeting place with God. They destroyed the temple By destroying Jesus. The temple ceased to have any validity. When everything the temple was pointing to was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled right there. They killed him. And in killing him, the temple was over. Destroy this temple. Both of them. Now, in three days... It's coming back up. Well, what do you mean? I mean that everything you needed that temple for is right here. You needed sacrifices to get right with God because you're a sinner. And I am the last sacrifice. You needed a priesthood to mediate between you and God. I am the mediator and the priesthood. You needed a place to meet God because you're so alienated from Him and you want to draw near to Him because you're made for Him. I am the place where you can draw near to Him. Which is why Christianity is such a universal religion. There's no place anymore that matters one dime. I've never gone to Israel. Now, I've got to be careful here. I will go to Israel someday, perhaps. Maybe on my 30th anniversary here, you'll give me a trip to Israel. Please check with me before you do that. I'd really rather have a car. (laughs) 
I'm re- I know I'm risking some things here. The land of Israel and the space means nothing in getting right with God, in belonging to Him, in being His people. And one day the Jews will, will see that and they will welcome their Messiah in Jesus Christ. We have no geographic center. Christ is our center. And therefore, in Guinea, in Tanzania, in Bangkok, in Japan, and Brazil, and Zaire, and Albania, and Germany, and England, and Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates, all of them and everywhere can immediately draw near to God. Find their sacrifice, find their priest, and find their God in Christ by one simple act of immobilized faith. This is the glory of Christianity. You don't have to go anywhere or talk to anybody but Jesus. Now, one last observation. This amazing statement, destroy the temple and in three days I'll build it again, was given in response to this word. What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Now come back here, Norwood. If you could come back, if you could come back. But some of you are alive and in this room. Norwood Russell Hansen. Come back and listen. Here he is. And they say, give me a sign. Give me some evidence. Give me a pointer. Give me something to stand on. You have acted in an irrational way unless... Is it true? What's the sign? And Jesus did not mean for this word to hang in the air with no help. He said, destroy this temple and I'll build it again. There's your sign. Now here we are on the other side of the sign. Three parts. Number one, they destroyed the sign according to his word. I mean, they destroyed the temple according to his word. He died. He knew he was going to die. He prophesied it and he died. Thirdly, he raised it from the dead. Now, let me just encourage you to consider that this is not a wild cultic claim spoken into the void without historical warrant. There's so many kinds of warrants we could talk about here. There's the warrant of the empty tomb in the midst of enemies trying to beat this movement down and unable to produce a body. How does the movement of a risen Christ happen in a city where the body is in a grave? They say, ah, they stole the body. Why do you give yourself up to martyrdom for a body you've got stashed in your bedroom? It's so irrational. There are pointers here, folks, to reality. Or you've got the Apostle Paul, for example, saying to the Corinthian church about 20 to 25 years after the event of Christ's resurrection, I saw him. I was a murderer. Everybody knows I hated Christianity. I was knocked off my horse, turned upside down. I'm laying my life down for this risen Christ. Believe me, my conversion is owing to a real revelation of Christ, but you don't have to take my word for it. He says, this Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Many of them are still alive. That's a quote from 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Which means that you could go check it out. Because these are falsifiable claims I'm making. 
that 500 people saw him at one time. Many of them are still alive. In other words, this is called in historiography, historical control. There's some control here as competing testimonies are made. I only say that to say, don't write it off as a claim being spoken without any historical warrant into the void. These are signs and pointers for the Norwood Russell Hansons among us all. And the third part of the sign, the death, the resurrection, is the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And Judaism, as we knew it for 2,000 years, ended. Now, if there are Jews here in this room, you would know, and you would say to me right now, oh, Judaism didn't end, and I know Judaism didn't end. In fact, the existence of Judaism today is one of the strongest arguments for the truth of the Bible. But the Judaism of today has no temple, has no sacrifices, has no priests. Why? That's a question they've got to answer. Why? And the answer is, it was all destroyed in 70 A.D. Why? Why? You have God on your side. And the answer is, the Messiah came. Came. He came. And when the Messiah dies, the temple dies. The priests are over. The sacrifices are over. The meeting with God is in the Messiah. That's our testimony to Jew and Gentile alike. Let's pray. Would you stand for prayer with me? Oh, Father, we want to lift our voices one more time now and Rejoice in our Lord Jesus. And as we do, I ask Holy Spirit that you'd come and enable some to say, Jesus is Lord authentically for the first time because you have in this word revealed yourself. I commend myself, Father, into your mercy and all of us. Care for us. Fill us. And now receive our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.